This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekelona. Almost exactly a year ago, Marisa DeMarco and I were developing Nimona using what we learned from the previous four months of covering the pandemic with the show Your New Mexico Government. You might remember, YNMG was five days a week. First it was an hour, then it was a half hour, then the schedule changed up a couple of times. The pandemic was new to all of us, to every human on the planet. It was the first of many changes to our collective reality, and uncertainty was the word of the time. You know, I think the word uncertainty has been said more times on this show than our nickname, Nimono. Yet, in those uncertain times, we knew that things would not be the same, no matter when our lives got back to some semblance of normality. We also spoke to a lot of people. I spoke to a lot of people. I think I was on the phone last year more than I was in middle school and high school combined. And much like some of you, countless hours of Zoom time. I wouldn't change it for anything. All of our guests gave us their time to talk about whatever crazy idea Marisa and I could come up with. So many different people with an abundance of knowledge and information. We hope that information helped you or someone you know and love. We found some time to let off some steam and have fun to celebrate big smiles. We did an old school shout out show. That was a blast. Hey, what's your name? Becky Jones. Hey, Becky, who you going to shout out? To Shanelle Atzong, my grandma. I love you and I miss you and I can't wait to hug you. That is beautiful. I'm sure she can't wait to hug you either. What are you going to do this weekend? <laughs> I am going to take it easy, do some reading, relax, take care of myself. Word them up. Well, enjoy it. Thank you. Yo, what's up, man? What's your name? Yo, man, Nick Valentine, a.k.a. Cello. Yo, who you want to shout out, Nick? Oh, man, let's let's give a shout out to the, let's go old school. We're going to go all the way, Desert Punk Mob, Small Town, T-Nice, Ruckus, Cooley D, the whole gang. Word them up. Thank you so much for calling the YNMG shout out line. We hit the streets to see how the people felt about the passage of a long-awaited law. Beat. I walk about five blocks east and I begin to smell something. I think I know what I'm smelling. I followed that smell to its source and there I met. My name is Hef the Great, uh, Boss Gong Media. <laughs> As you're about to hear, Hef had no problems in expressing how he feels about the new law. Oh man, we are too late. But we right on time. You know what I'm saying? We too late, but we right on time. I'm really kind of happy for it. You know, uh, it's been needed to happen here. You know what I'm saying? It really has. Cannabis allows us to live in a pursuit of happiness, and that really is our First Amendment right. You know what I'm saying? Now, that's not quite the correct order of the Bill of Rights, but there's always the chance of amendment. Today, we take a look at the past 16 months of No More Normal and share moments that stood out as we wrap up this interesting, funky show. Last year, Marisa called me up and said to me, Khalil, we should enter YNMG and Nimono into contests. I said, you know what, Marisa? That's a great idea. Then she was like, I know, right? And I was like, yeah. So we did. And we won a couple awards, placed in a couple of categories. Pretty cool. In all, YNMG and No More Normal took home awards from the Public Media Journalists Association, New Mexico Press Women's Association, and from the Colorado Pro Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists with their Top of the Rockies Awards. We'll be sharing sampling of a few this hour, starting with episode 42 of YNMG, Keeping the Faith, which took second place for religion feature at the Top of the Rockies. Joining me now from the Archdiocese of Santa Fe is Archbishop John Wester. Archbishop Wester, thanks for being here. You're most welcome, Carl. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. 
There are other faith leaders who are attempting to defy the social distancing orders, which is creating a divide. What advice do you have for a greater understanding for the gravity of the situation to be fully understood by both sides? I think the best way is for both sides to realize that there's no need to create a divide. There really isn't a divide. In other words, it's a false divide. It has nothing to do with the Constitution or religious liberty or separation of church and state. It has to do with viruses and how they do their thing. It's nature. It's just there are other ways of worshiping, other ways of praying, other ways of being together. The state has been served the lawsuit by the Legacy Church, saying that their First Amendment rights have been impeded on. I'm here with Pastor Daniel McCabe from Legacy Church. Pastor McCabe, thanks for being with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate that very much. If other religious faiths can adhere to the social distancing guidelines and aren't necessarily asking for the same exemption that box stores are getting, what makes organizations like Legacy and others, what makes them any different? I would think that... And I'm sure all sorts of different organizations, churches, other faiths can make their own decision. But we believe what the First Amendment says, that there shouldn't be laws made against religion. So if a box store is going to be allowed to have 20 percent, why wouldn't you allow a church to have 20 percent? If we are and we are adhering to social distancing rules and policies to do our live stream, then why not be allowed to have that number of people in in the room, in the auditorium, in the video room. You know, it's not like she, it's not like the governor made this order a week before Easter. She literally made it on the eve of Easter. I'm on the line with Brigadier General Michelle Lamontagne from the New Mexico Air National Guard. Thanks for joining me. Oh, no problem. As a practicing Buddhist, how has your faith helped you adapt to the coronavirus pandemic? I feel like it has given me a lot of hope. Our organization... Immediately when this happened, we even before the state started social distancing, we started doing it. But, you know, one of our concerns is not maintaining the practice and, you know, connection is a big part of it. So we started doing meetings and calls and every morning they have just a five minute touch base meeting where they give some kind of encouragement about how to move forward. And so that has really helped also. And it's helped me, like, be positive, to be optimistic, to have hope. One of the Buddhist sayings is winter always turns to spring. And so I say that to people when they're feeling down or they're feeling pessimistic about the state of things. I say winter always turns to spring to try to instill a little bit of hope in them. Yeah. I'm on the line with Abbas Akil. He is the vice president of the Islamic Center of New Mexico and also a state representative out of Albuquerque. Abbas, thank you for being with me today. Thank you, Claudia. How are you feeling during this time? Thank you for asking. I mean, feeling good, uh, but of course it is a difficult time. We are hanging together as a community, and that's remarkably good. It's a dark time, but it's also a time to be optimistic. At the Islamic Center of New Mexico, what are you all doing there to kind of change how you operate with these stay-at-home orders? Yeah, so we had to take some very drastic steps. Well, I'll take a minute to describe why it was more necessary for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you know, in Islamic practice, we congregate for prayer on Friday. That's usually, it's always the afternoon prayer. The way the ritual goes of the prayer is we stand on the carpet, shoulder to shoulder, line after row after row, and then follow the leader in doing certain ritualistic actions, part of which requires us to sit on the carpet, bow down, touch our forehead to the ground, That, to us, became a highly 
vulnerable practice because that is how it would spread. I am an older member of the community, both figuratively and actually. Mm. I've been here for 45 or 47 years. We've never, ever had to shut our doors for the Islamic Center. Mm. My parents have been frequent guests on both shows that we've done over the past year. I love talking to them and felt honored to share some of those conversations with you. Neither of my folks are afraid of a powerful statement. I suppose that's where I get it from. I've compiled some of my favorite parts of our talks, presenting my dad, Ademola Ekolona, and my mom, Olufemi Ekolona, and some of their more recent hits. I just wanted to talk to you about this situation that we're in. We're in the midst of a global pandemic, as well as this this uprising, particularly of awareness around racism, white supremacy, um, more in specific, police violence. Knowing who you are and knowing the work that you've done, I wanted to get some of your insight on these, on the current times that we're in. Well, I look at it as a confluence of events that is creating a lesson that no one can avoid. A pandemic is seen as the earth expressing its displeasure with what's going on. Not only so much that the earth is being abused in terms of pollutions and tortures, but that there's a prevailing injustice happening. Babaluaye is the name of the spirit that expresses as a pandemic or a virus, uh, some kind of disease that's going to spread among population. And the characteristic of Abeluaye is that he will bring the king to his knees. Because Babaluaye does not have any preferences. No one, black, white, colors, male, female, high class, low class, no class, employed, unemployed, anyone can be infected. And so the thing to do Traditionally, that it, it, it's amazing how similar it is to what the CDC says. Stay in the house. No big gatherings. You do not act as if everything is normal. So the thing is to be cool and self-reflect. Am I being unjust? Am I being unfair? Am I doing things that insult the earth? Those were the traditional measures of what the individual could do in response. And now, because of this with George Floyd, everyone saw, everyone. Your sister Janine, she's in Samoa. She tells me that people are coming up to her weeping, expressing their sympathy for what's going on in the United States. This is the American Tiananmen Square. Everyone saw Tiananmen Square and the wonderful hope that was there. And then, for it to come crashing down. China will never live it down. And I think this incident, Mr. Floyd has become this century's Emmett Till, perhaps. The issue truly is about men regarding their behavior. I think all men, males, look at yourself. What are you doing to bring peace? Are you supporting efforts of community Uh, you're using some kind of old trope to allow you to have authority over another man that's the problem you can change the law but custom takes time and there's a custom 
of white men being willing to excuse domination of some black man. And I know now that's not going to happen anymore. My grandmother lived in Castonia, North Carolina. I was about 13. I was old enough to go with my friend into town. And so we went. We had to take the bus. I told her, I said, you know, we can sit at the front of the bus now because Rosa Parks did her thing. And so my friend was nervous and she said, no, no, we have to sit in the back. Well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. So I sat in the very front. You know, the people got on and the bus driver was telling me that I had to sit in the back and I told him no. So they called the cops. He called the cops. And the people got nervous, got off the bus, and they drove me to my grandmother's house by myself. Hmm. And to show you it was a small town. Word had gotten to my grandmother and my mother about this, and I was on my way by myself. So they were standing outside waiting for me. Hmm. And I felt triumphant. I had this big smile on my face because I had done what I did. My grandmother and my mother were very upset with me and I couldn't understand it until they explained to me, even though Rosa Parks had done her thing, the people in the South were very slow about this. I mean, it wasn't she did her thing and then people started sitting at the front of the bus. Yeah. It took time and my grandmother said, you can't do that. You can't do that down here. And she says, and you have to understand that that brings bad things to her. You know, in other words, you know, she has to live there. But they did explain it, that it just wasn't one, two, three. Mm -hmm. And you know, me coming from New York, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they brought me home. I was the only one on the bus. Did they say anything to you while you were on the bus or was it just a oh, silent no. bus ride? Silent bus ride. I wanted to have kids and raise them up. I didn't want my kids to have to go through some of the stuff that I had gone through as a child and growing up and seeing the contradictions of racism in America and how you have to endure different kind of things. And there was an empowerment that was happening as a result of Black people waking up well, speaking up, more than waking up, they had been woke. It was like uh, paid attention to in a different way. And we paid attention to ourselves. There was also a higher standard of behavior. They still didn't want to make the race look bad, even when you were saying, I'm black and I'm proud. Now that song now, you listen to that song, because what James Brown did, he... It was a powder keg in America because people didn't know what these people are actually talking about black as if it's positive. There was a lot of tension. And James Brown came out with that song. And I remember when you would be on the bus or something, somebody would have their little radio and that song would come on. I'm black and I'm proud. It would be something because it made the black people feel so good. And the beat is just wonderful. You know, so it really worked. 
I remember when I was in the second grade, our names were changed legally. And right. our last name was changed from Floyd to A. Colonna. My second grade teacher refused to address me as A. Colonna. You know, it was a really big issue with that classroom. Yeah. Well, I mean, your father and I weren't going to have it. What is it that you can't use the name A. Colonna instead of the original name Floyd? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense at all. So it took a lot, which is very unfortunate. But finally, your teacher had to concede and call you that. I remember it was like about a month, well, I don't know, time relative. It took a while. It took a while, you know? And I remember you and Baba sitting me down and saying that, hey, your teacher is racist because she's refusing to call you by your new name. Yeah, it's an unfortunate thing with black kids. You have to teach them about racism so early. Mm which is so sad. Your father, he came to me and he said, I don't like what they're reading. They're not reading black authors. He went to the school and he gave them a list of black authors that they should start letting the kids read, and they did it. You just can't trust anybody else. You've got to stay behind it, you know what I mean? Which one of your kids was the easiest to deal with when it came to school? Honestly, none of you. Yeah? Okay. You each had your own little thing that I would have to go up to the school for, or it was always something. You mean not me? I am so sorry, my darling, but no. <laughs> in, in different ways, I was at that school all the time. Each one of you sent me up there quite a bit. <laughs> I'm telling you. You have to understand that your child can be wrong too, you know? And we were both very open-minded and understanding that I, I didn't have a, a child with a halo over its head and that they could do wrong. So we would come home and, and I would talk to you about it. There were times when we went and you all gave us the wrong information. <laughs> and it was all right. We got what was actually the truth in some cases. You know, if the teacher's telling you this and you realize that your kid politely omitted that part. See, I, I say, okay, Black Lives Matter. Immediately when I heard it, I said, well, black people, you got to prove it. If they matter, then why is JoJo shooting Buck? At 15, 19, 18, 20, 22, you are not fully developed in the brain. You should not put yourself in a position where you think, you know, I ain't afraid to die. I asked some young men that 19, 20 years old, a few years ago. I asked them, you afraid to die? And there's three of them in the car. No, no, no. One of them said, I'm afraid to live, 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 live. Last month or so, there was a, a baby that was shot with a bullet in the car because someone was after them for the baby's father. Well, under that circumstance, how can anyone in the black community justify the don't snitch principle? This baby is shot with a bullet. Someone's finger pulled that trigger. In Baltimore City, Police estimate there might be four or 5% of the population that's engaging in all this gun violence. And so that means there's probably at least 90% of this population that's not doing it. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is say, okay, well, if this 90% has to deal with this systemic racism and they are not shooting one another, what about the personal responsibility factor in that 5%? I tell this anecdote to people all the time, but if anybody listening has seen the movie Crooklyn, there's a scene where the kids are yeah. sleeping and mom yeah. comes to wake everybody up at what seems to be in the middle of the night. 
I remember yeah. very much on a school night. Didn't matter what day it was. No, 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 no. It wasn't. It was never on a school night. Oh yes, it was on a school night. I remember one time no. specifically in the eighth grade where it was a school night, and I still had to get up and go to school and make it happen. I remember that. Oh yes. It was on a weekend. Sometimes on the weekend. Sometimes on the weekend. But, well, I got to tell the people what you did. The situation is this. We would, you know, everybody's, you're given your chores daily, nightly chores. And we would not necessarily be thorough in our accomplishment (laughs) of the chores. Not at all. Let me say. (laughs) And so you go to sleep, you do your thing, watch your little program, and you go to bed, and you're thinking you're fine. And then, boom, door opens, light on, wake up. And it's 2.30 in the morning, and we're here finishing our chores that we did incompletely. But you had a really wonderful technique that used to... At first, okay, it frustrated me, but then I just laughed at it. I'm like, this is absolutely brilliant in teaching us how to be thorough because you would come and you'd be like, you didn't, you didn't take out all of the trash. You have to do that. And look at your room. You didn't put this up. You didn't put that up. But you would go to the parts of my room that were neat and kind of mess them up too. <laughs> in the, the expression of your frustration, talking about being older and being an adult, I can see it now. Like, I understand now as an adult what you were going through in raising us. So right. I could understand why you did that. But the one thing about it, you know, being woken up at 3 a.m. to finish chores, but you always, always, always gave us a life lecture after we're done with our chores, want to go right back yeah. to bed, but you would make us sit in the living room while, you know, between 25 minutes to an hour, you would give us a lecture on anything about life. So tell me, like, why did you do it that way? And what were you really trying to get across? What life was and your part in life and what you should do. But that was funny because when you saw Crooklyn, and the mother did the same thing, you all went wild. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You were like, wow, you're not the only one that does that. You know, and that kind of thing. That was, I can remember seeing on your faces. But it's just that I always could think clearly in the middle of the night, Mm. okay? Mm -hmm. Because it it was still, it was quiet. And even though it may seem awful what I did to you all, but I think my love was enhanced more in the middle of the night being able to think and wanting to plan and wanting to make sure that you all were okay. Because if you remember, it wasn't one way. Yeah. You all were also allowed to speak Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to talk. That was a way for me to see where you all were at you know mm-hmm. and of course you you all were angry and you know wanted to go to bed but it was a way of seeing where you all were at and what what you thought and i would give you my viewpoints yeah yeah because as teenagers you, you tend to get quiet mm-hmm. you don't tend to tell your parents everything so my parents talked to me, but I wanted to talk to you all more. And in the middle of the night, you listen. <laughs> 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 and it was good to wake you up, but I insist it was on the weekend. 
In March 2020, Khalil and I were sitting at the press club, an old wooden house in Albuquerque that served as a meeting spot for journalists since the 70s. Khalil knows everyone, so people kept coming to the table looking for a handshake or a high five or a hug, and Khalil was offering his elbow to folks so they could tap each other's elbows instead. It was maybe the first day I heard the word pandemic coming from anyone's mouth. No one was sure yet about masks, and the city wasn't yet in lockdown. Khalil and I were talking about turning our podcast, Your NM Gov, into a nightly pandemic response show to scrutinize how government responded to the virus, to share resources with people as they came up. We thought KUNM, where we both worked as journalists, might carry the show on the air. We thought it would be just a month or so of hard work, and then it would be all over. Khalil and I didn't really know each other. We had no idea that we would spend the next year and a half on the phone, around the clock, bunkered in our homes, making radio seven days a week. We couldn't yet see that we were about to find new capacities for clear thinking through exhaustion and dread, and also for research and questioning, for understanding through storytelling. I didn't know yet that Khalil would become one of my closest friends, the person who kept track of me as I headed into dangerous situations, or who would talk to me on the phone as hardships came our way, or as the pandemic abated, the person who would throw my small birthday party. But what we did know back in those times, the early, early days of the pandemic, was that our skill and our passion was communication. As the storm gathered, we knew this was how we could help. Yeah, it was a lot of work for a couple of people to do, but we always knew it was worth it. Every time someone reached out to us to let us know that they found something they needed in the show, I felt like we were doing our job. That job wasn't just finding news, relaying good info, or creating a kind of dinner table on the radio where people could share experiences and argue ideas. Underlying all of those tasks was another job, creating connection in a time of isolation and physical distancing. Those months, they were hard for most everyone. The lives we knew gone, the forced physical distance, wondering if a trip to the grocery store was okay, spending a lot of the day with the same couple of people or alone. Radio gave us a little company, let us hear one another's voices. And this show, I hope, kept our humanity forefront reminded us of the fully dimensional people we all are. I wrote one of the lines we use to close the hour every time. It's the one you hear that goes like this. As always, we want to thank our guests for offering their ideas, insights, and expertise. And we really mean it every time. It's not just a gratuity. Those things, our ideas, our insights, and our expertise are among the best gifts we give one another. Most everyone who came on the show did it as an act of generosity for their neighbors, their community, their people in a time of hardships. I'm so grateful to the guests and to the people listening in, to everyone who came to the kitchen table. And I'm lucky that Khalil Ikalona, this person I barely knew, is who I sheltered through the storm with. He's steady, he's brilliant, he's authentic. As we head off in different directions now, I know we'll always be the kind of friends who can get through anything. For No More Normal, I'm Marisa DeMarco.
This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil E. Colonna. We are wrapping up our journey with you today by taking a look back at some of the moments and guests from your New Mexico government and Nimona. It has been a profoundly transformative experience in making this show, a show that we hoped you looked forward to as it gave you information, insight, and a little hope. Hope that we can all take with us into the future. Because after this, there will be no mo Nimona. Okay, back to some of the awards we picked up. YNMG notched a second place finish at the top of the Rockies by the Colorado chapter of SPJ with episode 43, Essential, Just Not Paid Like It, where we focused on essential workers, their inequities in pay and the dangers they faced working in a pandemic. Here with me to talk about workers' rights during the coronavirus pandemic is Marcela Diaz. She is the executive director of Somos Un Pueblo Unido. Marcela, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Khalil. Tell me about the problems you're hearing from low-wage workers who are still out there working. Well, we are a statewide organization, and so our uh, our members are having, you know, they are facing a lot of obstacles in the time of COVID-19, especially as low-wage workers. We're a workers' rights organization, and so we're seeing uh, both for essential workers as well as non-essential workers who have seen dramatic cuts in their hours as well uh, as as layoffs, if they've seen layoffs in their families and, and they're struggling economically and also having to deal with some other issues that we shouldn't be having to deal with in this time, like wage theft. We've had several folks from around the state talk about not being able to get their last paychecks and being told by their employers, we don't have the money to pay you and you can go and try to get unemployment. To get a closer understanding of how this is affecting immigrant workers, I'm here again with my good friend Marianne Mendez Serra. She is with El Centro de Igualdad y Derechos. Marianne, thanks for being with me again. Thanks for inviting me back. Let me ask you about worker exploitation. It seems that under these circumstances, people who aren't documented, who necessarily cannot go to the authorities to say that they're being exploited, what are the chances for them to be exploited by their employers? Well, you see, Kelly, even before this pandemic, the chances of a worker speaking up, it was really hard because there's so many things at risk. And when a worker is trying to affirm their rights, trying to tell their employer, you know, I was $100 short, where's my entire check? Or, you know what, I'm feeling sick, I need to take a day off. There's not a link called playing field about talking about workers' conditions. And when we have a dynamic of power at work, then it creates a type of environment in which it can't lead to exploitation. I'm on the line with Stephanie Welsh. She is the Director of Workers' Rights for the New Mexico Center of Law and Poverty. Stephanie, thanks for being with me today. Thank you for having me. So much of this conversation has been about how isolated people feel in their homes. 
but plenty of folks are still out there working. What problems are low-wage workers who still have to go to work having despite the dangers? What are they facing right now? People who are doing this essential work that has always been essential are now exposed to the dangers that the rest of us are sheltering from in our homes. A lot of workers don't have the protective equipment that they think they need to do their jobs. Their workplaces aren't being sanitized. They don't have access to water to wash their hands regularly. They're not being kept far enough away from their coworkers. Mm-hmm. And some workers are complaining to us that they have been told by their doctor that they should stay at home, but their employers refusing to allow them to take leave and insisting that they work. For even the most diligent social distancers, grocery stores remain a fairly unavoidable regular outing. With that has come for many a newfound appreciation for the importance of grocery store employees and the services they provide. KUNM's Nash Jones caught up with Liz Coyle, the head cashier at a Sprouts Farmer's Market in Las Cruces, to talk about that and what it's like being on the front lines of food during the pandemic. First of all, how are you doing? Has anyone in your family or your workplace been impacted by COVID-19, gotten sick or anything like that? As of right now, everyone that I know and uh, all my family are all fine. A bunch of them are actually staying home. So I'm one of, I think, two of my family who actually are still going to work right now. What has it been like at Sprouts lately? Are you seeing a lot of panic buying or customers generally pretty reasonable? Yeah. So initially, like the week before and the week of the announcement, there was like a huge panic buy for a couple of days in a row, maybe a whole week. I've worked at Walmart historically, and uh, I would liken it to a Black Friday is what it felt like. One of the treats in making these shows was the opportunity I had in talking with a wide range of guests, people from all walks of life, from as close as Barbara Jordan of Rio Rancho to as far as Puresh Shadhari in Islamabad, Pakistan. Here is a sampling of some of our notable guests. It was a part of our mission to talk with our elected officials, people who asked us to trust them with, in some cases, life and death decisions. We made it a point to bring them on when we could. Here is New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham talking with me last July as the federal government was working through an extension on COVID relief funds and in New Mexico, pressure was mounting to reopen the state's economy. Mm -hmm. And let's be clear about how significant the lack of economic security is and the hundreds of, you know, we've got uh, 150,000 plus on on in New Mexico and we have millions across the country. This is significant. I have to hope that the federal government is gonna get this right and that they are going to extend and continue to provide some relief or support. But we can't rely on that all by itself, which means I need New Mexicans to get the mask wearing and all of the other public health practices right. The sooner we do that, then the better able we're going to be or the opportunities to reopen safely. Fast forward to January 2021, when we had Congresswoman Teresa Ledger Fernandez and Senator Martin Heinrich on to talk about their reaction to the events of January 6th. The House chambers were filled with people who wanted to make sure that the events of last Wednesday were not forgotten and were not ignored. 
so you had very passionate speeches from the Democrats invoking the importance of protecting our Constitution, describing in detail what it was like last Wednesday, but also recognizing that this moment in history, that we have an obligation to answer it and that we are carrying with us in our duty as elected representatives, that the Constitution has placed upon us both a burden and a responsibility to say, was this an impeachable offense? I was convinced with the argument that if this is not an impeachable offense, there is never going to be one. Mm -hmm. Because this was action that was directed at the transition of power. It was directed at overturning and interfering with Congress's duty to certify an election. I think we have to ask ourselves very biting and difficult and hard questions about the clear difference in approach between the protest of organizations like Black Lives Matter. And I was on the ground in the middle of D.C. and witnessed those myself. And I witnessed the response to those uh, and what happened on the Capitol ground on January 6th. New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver here talking about the importance of voting, not only for the national elections, but the vitally important local races. If you didn't understand before how the decisions of your state and local government impacted your life on a daily basis, I do believe a, a silver lining of the pandemic if I can say this, is that I think that folks' awareness has grown tremendously around how important these offices are and how much power they have. And what I hope that does more than anything else is bring people out to the polls, that it sparks their interest in these races, makes them want to do their homework and elect somebody who they feel best represents their interest. And that is the best that we can ever hope for in our democracy. On election night, New Mexico Republican Party Chair Steve Pierce talked with me about the results of the night and whether negative campaign ads have a future. The opinion in my house is that these ads from both sides, negative attack ads, are not effective. Why have candidates not really released ads talking about their policy position and not attacking their opponent? This seems to be the playbook every year, every election, no matter the party. Hey, you're telling me I was 18 years, I was in, uh, for about 12 of the 18 years, I was the number one target of many of the environmental groups nationwide that come in and run those ads. Every two years against me, anywhere from a million to two million dollars worth of ads. I wish that they weren't there myself. I agree with you. But campaigns feel like they work is the reason they run them. I don't know that to be true. I'm just telling you what campaigns generally feel like and, and will do that. It's just one of the, the things that people would roundly simply not pay attention and vote for the other candidate when they see the negative ad, that would stop it. But uh, both parties engage in it, and it is a very miserable time for us in watching these ads. Richard Clark, a former national security advisor to three presidents, describes the leadership tactics employed by the last administration. The U.S. government under Trump is taking all of the steps that authoritarian regimes have taken all across the world. It's a playbook that uh, goes step by step. The first step is discredit the media. Tell people that the media are the enemy of the state, which are the exact words that Trump used. You discredit the media uh, and then you take over the police and you bit by bit you corrupt and overtake uh, control of the government. That's exactly what he's doing and it's exactly what every dictator has ever done. 
Ben Maku, a domestic terrorism reporter for Vice, presents a description of some of the groups that pose a threat. So these groups also, they definitely span different political ideologies, but they all have that uniting idea of wanting to essentially take out the U.S. government. So you have your Boogaloo Boys, some of your militias, and you also have neo-Nazi terrorist organizations like Adam Waffen Division or the base. And these groups in particular have been under the surveillance of the FBI for a long time. For the last probably two years, the Bureau has undertaken a very, very aggressive action to to take out those groups. And they've, they've stopped them from doing things like plotting to bomb the power grid, to mm. shooting up gun rallies, political assassinations, all sorts of really, you know, classically terroristic things that I think most people would associate with groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And when it comes to the violence that happened last week, a lot of those types of groups are just applauding the fact that you have some of this alt-right MAGA crowd that's a little more mainstream than they are who organized this type of plot, this type of day, and it went so, you know, in their eyes, so successfully. Tim Wise, an anti-racism activist on some of the revelations that some white Americans had as a result of George Floyd's murder and the uprising in its wake. Well, I think I think the first and foremost question that we always ought to start with is, you know, who is in the best position to determine whether or not a systemic inequality and mistreatment are happening? Is it the person to whom it's happening or the person to whom it isn't happening? You know, I always use the thought experiment. If I ask any white person in America right now, hey, do you think that things were equal for black folks in 1963 or 1962? No matter your politics, if even you could be a very conservative white person today and you're still gonna say, no, of course not, right? Because everybody knows. You don't have to know history that well, right? To know that like, that's the middle of the civil rights movement. Of course it wasn't equal. But what's interesting is, you go back and you read those Gallup polls, right? And two out of three white people in 1963 told Gallup that black people had equal opportunity. In retrospect, that's absurd. But at the time, white people who were every bit as rational, every bit as functional as white people are today, completely believed that. Obviously, white people were really, really wrong when they said that. And black folks who were like, yeah, no, it's not quite that way, uh, were right. Now, what happened in the last half century? Did white people suddenly become super perceptive? And now we understand the way the world works. And black folks who had totally correct 50 years ago or so, 60 years ago, lost their minds and they can't determine their own reality anymore? Come on. Nothing changed, right? The reality is when you're in the system of oppression, you're the one who knows when it's happening. And if you're not in the system, you don't have to see it. So the obliviousness is very dangerous, but it's a privilege that we've had from the beginning of the country. We also had renowned anti-racism educator Jane Elliott on the show. We are in worse shape than we were during the civil rights movement because we have a leader, supposedly a leader, who says it's all right to hate those who are different from yourself. It's all right to abuse those people. It's all right. And he has said openly, we're going to put a wall along the southern border of the United States because we don't want those brown-skinned people to come in here because they reproduce too rapidly. Mm. The fear of white people in this country right now is the knowledge that the demographics of this country say within 30 years, white people will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. And that's what we're dealing with, is that theater. 
Here's writer and TV host Jamel Hill sharing her thoughts on athletes using their platforms for social justice. I think that now, because there's a certain safety net that has been created by Colin Kaepernick, by Maya Moore, by LeBron James, it makes it easier for others to come forward. But I like how they have used their platform, not just to talk about what they want to talk about, but they've used it to amplify activists and those on the ground who have been doing the work for mm -hmm. years. You know, when LeBron James created more than a vote, he didn't create it by himself. Yeah. He leaned on Stacey Abrams. He leaned on other leaders and voting advocates who have been working tirelessly doing these things for years. And he provided the megaphone. I think that's probably in 2021 and beyond the best way to achieve both the reach that a celebrity and an athlete has with the blueprint for how to get things done. ESPN reporter Lisa Salters on how one NBA player's positive result early in the pandemic sent the message to the entire country that COVID was here. Well, Rudy Gobert was patient zero. He was the first American athlete to test positive for the coronavirus because of him. You know, as he said, like we shut down, sports shut down, the country shut down yeah. because it needed to. To his point, you know, maybe what happened to him saved lives. Maybe if he hadn't tested positive, people would have still been for, I don't know how many more days or weeks even, piling into arenas and stadiums and not doing what we should have been doing, which was staying home. Yeah. So someone was going to be the first. Yes. It just so happened to be him. He likely saved lives because he tested positive. Once he did, the world as we know it changed. Planet Money host Jacob Goldstein on how the gold standard got buried. And here is Professor David Carroll of the Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, about how his data was mined by the now defunct political consulting company, Cambridge Analytica. As it turns out, a heroic act of journalism is what ended up giving me my data. I did get some data back in 2017. I knew it wasn't the whole file. The legal case was really about, no, I know this is not it, show all of my data. And so what Channel 4 showed me was a much more complete dossier of not only my voting and political profile, but a pretty extensive consumer profile, which had been collected from various data brokers. And it also contained a psychological score. And we talked to a lot more. No time to fit them all in. But you can hear any of our past guests. Just look us up at KUNM.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
The highest profile award we won is for episode 13 of No More Normal, The Real Crime. Marisa DeMarco took all of her journalistic experience over the past decade and addressed a very interesting link between racist campaign rhetoric and the actual numbers. Her mastery of work won us first place for the Public Media Journalists Association. A big deal. Take a listen. Nomono executive producer presents The Real Crime. I've been telling pieces of the story I'm about to try to tell you in full for at least a decade. In small chunks, in four minute bites on the radio, in a thousand words here and there in print. Throughout the hour, I'll be laying out some facts from news reports, from studies and research. And on the post for this show online, I'll include links to all of that information. So if you want to, you can dive into this yourself too. Hours after the protest broke up, the cruise was completely over. And a group smashed windows downtown and dragged furniture out of a sandwich shop and lit a small bonfire. These folks were not talking about Black Lives Matter. Police lines formed on either side, choppers circled, making announcements over mounted loudspeakers. There were flashbangs and tear gas and what they call less lethal munitions. No one was seriously injured. But the next day, I spotted a couple of headlines about the protests erupting in riots, implying that thousands of people attended a candlelight vigil and a march and then just lost their minds and trashed the city. I know that's not what happened, because I stayed to see the whole thing, and a lot of reporters didn't. The news organizations couldn't not have the story. They didn't really have it firsthand. The police were already facing criticism for a militaristic response to a protest a couple of days before, so their spin was emphasizing the threat. And the next day, reporters and editors were just kind of relying on press releases from the police and live stream videos to say what happened. I stayed up all night, I wrote news stories, I was on the air. This is KUNM, I'm Nash Jones. KUNM's Marisa DeMarco, live from downtown Albuquerque. Good morning, Marisa. Good morning, Nash. I'm wondering what you're seeing. You're still downtown. Yeah, so right now, I mean, police have most of downtown. I walked around downtown the next morning, and it felt pretty normal again. I live-streamed some of those walks a little after dawn, and they didn't get anywhere near the hundreds of views that the scuffle from the night before got. I mean, it was early. But also, who wants to watch a quiet, peaceful morning downtown? Afterward, the city helped people board up businesses, and some extra boards went up on windows that weren't broken. When you consider the context of fear and racism in this country, those extra boards, the apocalyptic downtown, didn't help anything. We've talked about what we know doesn't deter crime. Let me tell you about something that has been shown by studies, by data, to deter crime. Recidivism is a big deal in New Mexico. More than half of the people who are released from prison head back there within three years. They commit a crime and they go back. Years ago, I was interviewing a man who'd spent a lot of time in and out of prison. He'd been out for a while when we met and was working on a project to help other men avoid the trap of recidivism. And we were talking about what it's like to feel ashamed of calling your family. Because the call is expensive and you're not able to provide for your family anymore, so you hate to be an expense, too. And it's a privilege that often gets taken away by prison staff when you're punished anyway. So it's easier not to want it. 
People who talk to their family members while they're in prison are more likely not to head back there once they're out, according to the stats. And just about everyone who is in prison will leave one day. Even though contact with family members is proven to be a deterrent to committing another crime once they're out, making family contact gets billed during campaigns as perks for prisoners, part of a lavish lifestyle on the inside. The guy I was talking to said something that really stuck with me. Prison, he said, started to feel like real life to him. And when he was on the outside, it felt like a vacation or a dream or something. I can't imagine how much money has been spent sending police to the International District and flying helicopters overhead, but it's probably a lot more than it would cost to fix up the streetlights, repair the sidewalks, maybe add more trees and green space. But again, we get back to if someone's just outraged about a vicious crime they saw on the news, or maybe your car got broken into again, is it time to talk about lights and infrastructure? But when is it gonna be time? I tell new reporters I'm training that when they pitch a story to me, they have to answer two questions. Why and why now? That means why is it important to tell everyone this story? And why is it important to tell it to them right now? For the record, I'm not the only person to say this. Someone probably said it to me early on and it resonated, so it became part of my reporter DNA. Why did Khalil and I decide to give an episode to this? Because we don't want there to be crime either. I'm serious. I... Next week, we have a special episode of No More Normal as we honor the life and work of Hannah Colton. Hannah is always in our hearts. Join us next week to find out why. That's next week on the final episode of No More Normal. Thanks to all of our guests over the past 16 months. Thanks to our media partners, New Mexico PBS and the Santa Fe Reporter. Thanks to our funders. Thanks to the news team at KUNM for help with editing and providing awesome reporting and content. Thanks to Marisa DeMarco and Taylor Velasquez for being some of the best people to work with in the most uncertain times. Yes, I said it again. Special shout out to Marisa for following up when I come through with wild guest ideas like trying to book His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You really rock. Thanks to Jazzstone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olaud Records for providing music to the show. Sarah Stennett, Khalil Ecolona, and Marisa DeMarco produced some of the show's themes. Oops, that's a mistake. Okay, it's Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. I'll have to edit that out. No More Normal is produced and hosted by yours truly. I'm Khalil Ecolona, and for everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for sticking with us, and thanks for listening. 